Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a monster hunter shares eyewitness accounts of encounters with a legendary creature from Boggy Creek. This thing has tried to get into houses. Another family had a really interesting story in which the guy said he could remember when they were kids, they lived right along Boggy Creek and way out in the woods. And his dad had constructed this sort of wooden piece that went across the door that he called the monster blocker. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Lyle Blackburn is here to discuss the monster of Boggy Creek and other sinister swamp creatures. He's a native Texan known for his work in writing, music, film, and cryptid research. He's the author of several acclaimed books, including The Beast of Boggy Creek and Lizard Man, whose subject matter reflects his lifelong fascination with legends and sighting reports of unknown creatures. Lyle is also the founder of the rock band Ghoul Town, a columnist for the horror magazine Rue Morgue, and narrator, co-producer of documentary films including The Mothman of Point Pleasant and Boggy Creek Monster. He's a frequent guest speaker at cryptozoology conferences around the country and has appeared on numerous TV shows such as Monsters and Mysteries in America, Strange Evidence, and Finding Bigfoot. His latest book is called Boggy Creek Casebook, Falk Monster Encounters, 1908 to Present featuring nearly 90 credible eyewitness encounters with the legendary Boggy Creek Monster of Falk, Arkansas, of course made famous by the Legend of Boggy Creek movie of the 1970s. Hey Lyle, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you're in Dallas, and when I think of Texas, I don't necessarily think of swamps. There may be some swamps I'm not aware of, but I don't think of swamps when I think of Texas. I think of Louisiana, and I think of Alabama and Florida. Why are you so fascinated, and have always been, it seems, fascinated with swamps? Well, you know, that 
that's one of probably one of the reasons because where I grew up somewhat in central North Texas, you know, I, I wasn't aware that there was any swamps in Texas. They always seem like such far away, you know, magical and mystical, spooky places. So when I was young, I remember watching, you know, movies that had swamps or a lot of Scooby-Doo episodes and it was always uh, set in a swamp. And so I just thought, oh man, it's just, you know, uh, a place I would want to go and, you know, dinosaur books always depicted sort of the primordial swamp. Uh, later, as I got older, I actually learned that there are plenty of swamps in Texas, uh, particularly in the eastern portion where it's heavily forested and a lot less of the sort of western John Wayne look that you may get as you, you know, go west. Uh, and, you know, that merges into Louisiana. So, you know, in, in in my adult life, I've explored many a swamp that aren't too far from where I live. How do you get on with snakes? <laughs> I, I, I do not like snakes very much, uh, so I definitely try to avoid those, wear snake boots and, and be cautious, but I've certainly seen my share of uh, cottonmouth or water moccasins, and oftentimes they'll even hang from the trees. I've been canoeing through areas where uh, you look up and you see them like kind of almost glaring at you. And that that's my least favorite part of a swampy area. How about alligators? Any encounters? Yeah, certainly. Uh, they, they've sort of, you know, proliferated even in uh, the eastern portion of Texas. And of course, they're they're all over Louisiana and southern Arkansas. And, you know, I've been paddling by where a, a good 12-footer has, you know, been sort of going alongside the boat and you know at those points I sort of keep my arms and hands inside the <laughs> the canoe area but so far so good but alligators and snakes are not your your primary concern in terms of your your research of course uh, those would be a more sinister uh creatures and uh, of course uh you've written about uh, sinister swamps, monsters, and mysteries from the mire uh, that came out last year. But your your uh, most recent work is the Boggy Creek casebook. Of course, the uh, the Boggy Creek monster, perhaps the most famous of all swamp creatures in the Americas. For not for those not familiar with uh, what's been happening down in Arkansas, I guess since around the 1940s, maybe before. Tell us, give us a thumbnail sketch of the legend of Boggy Creek. Well, the case uh, is set in southwestern Arkansas in a little town called Falk. And early on, there were sightings of a creature that was, you know, in general, a Bigfoot-like thing, seven foot tall, covered in hair, walked upright, sort of ape-like, sort of wild man. And those stories were made famous by a movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek, which was released in 1972 and was a huge phenomenon in the 70s. And that sort of was one of the catalysts for a lot of guys who, you know, are in the field of cryptozoology or paranormal, you know, saw that movie and were inspired to, to do Bigfoot research. And of course, it inspired me because it was a lot closer to Texas than, say, the Pacific Northwest, where, you know, a lot of the early Bigfoot stories were coming out of. And so in modern times, um, you know, the legend of Boggy Creek has sort of stood out as one of the, you know, most well-known Southern Sasquatch cases. And being that it is also set in sort of a murky, 
bottomland swampy area. It sort of had all the ingredients for me to do a lot of research over the years as far as the the history of the sightings, the making of the movie, and, and the sightings that have continued today. And so with the Boggy Creek Casebook, I sort of compiled a chronological uh, details of, of all the sightings that I've investigated or that were on record uh, with newspapers and the movie and things like that in sort of one thing because uh, as I've done Bigfoot conferences and things, everybody you know comes up and asks about the legend of Boggy Creek. So it's kind of been my uh, you know favorite and premier case that I sort of return to every once in a while as I you know, write other books or do films. It's it's sort of the main one. Right. In this new book, the Boggy Creek Case Book features nearly 90 credible eyewitness encounters with the uh, Boggy Creek monster. Can you share uh, maybe one of the more recent sightings and an eyewitness account? Uh, certainly. Uh, there, there's been quite a few, um, you know, recently. And, you know, in one of the cases, there were a couple of women who, you know, grew up in the town and, you know, people who live there kind of have their views. Some of them, you know, don't put much stock in it or if, if like anyone, if they haven't seen it themselves, they're not quite sure where, whether to believe. But uh, these two women uh, about a year ago were driving uh, s- south of Falk where the Sulphur River bottoms begin and it was close to, you know, dusk, evening time, and suddenly they saw a figure come out of the woods and run across this old Highway 71, right, you know, pretty close in front of their car. And they saw it run down uh, another street that runs to the side, north of a place called McKinney Bayou. And, of course, they're looking, they're trying to process what they see, uh, they're, they're alarmed by this and it, it's running upright. They said it, it was, you know, obviously covered in hair. It looked like an animal and not, you know, not like somebody in a costume or anything like that. It moved fluidly and they continued to drive as it ran to the right because they were just too frightened to stop at the moment. Uh, but of course, uh, several seconds later realized, wow, we, we, maybe this would be the only time we see this thing. We should turn around. They turned around and then went down the other side street and did not see it again. But this is one of those cases where, uh, by literally seeing something themselves, it transformed their whole concept of, of the, of the possibility of this Falk monster or Boggy Creek monster, uh, actually living in the Sulphur River bottoms. And these are, you know, like m- many, many of the witnesses I've interviewed are very credible, you know, just average citizens. They're not out looking for Bigfoot even. They were just some someone who were was in the, well, I think it's the right place at the right time, but depending on how they viewed the frightening encounter, they, they were there to see it in person. And the, the Boggy Creek monster is it always described in uh, the same manner long uh, or sorry tall seven feet tall r- red hair uh, three toes in general you know there, there's some varying degrees of uh, you know people describing the color from being very dark black to brownish to reddish 
Um, and then the height has varied. I, I interviewed a woman in 2014 who had a, a quite uh, startling encounter one day north of the Sulphur River bottoms when she was driving out at 10.30 a.m. a few days before Thanksgiving. And she uh, was driving up this, this is just a county road way out in the woods, and she realized she forgot something, so she stopped and kind of did a three-point turnaround to head back the other way. And she, she looked up, and there was this thing standing in the road. It was upright, covered in hair, but she said it was about five feet tall. And at first thought it was maybe a kid playing a prank. But as she sat there, she said, I could see the hair moving. It just sort of looked at me and I looked at it. And uh, when she told me about this, she was kind of confused. She said, well, I know it was only about five feet tall. I said, well, it only makes sense if these things are real. If there's a population, you know, they have to grow up. There's going to be juveniles. So occasionally you do get these reports where uh, it's, a you know, not seven feet tall, but that kind of adds credibility in my, in my opinion, because it's not like people are describing an archetype. They're actually describing a creature that could vary in color and vary in height and, you know, general description. Um, you, um, you say that the encounters actually go back to 1908, uh, in, in the case book in most sort of well, if you look on Wikipedia, for example, they, they talk about the Boggy Creek Monster, uh, the, the, the initial sightings being around the 1940s. But talk to me about the earliest sightings in 1908. Right. They definitely go back further than 1940. And that, that has been propagated over the years by some early newspaper articles that kind of that mentioned one of the first sightings on record, which was a guy who said it was around 1941 or something. Um, but by going to the town and interviewing people, I've, I've found, uh, you know, ones that date back even further. And the first one is roughly dated at 1908. And in that case, there was a family down fishing in uh, the lower part of Mercer Bayou. And uh, the one of the girls, this little girl, uh, was out playing around and looked up into the bushes and saw what she sort of described as a hairy man or hairy ape that was looking at her. And it darted off and disappeared into the shadows and, uh, you know, told her family that she had seen this thing. And, of course, at the time, and no one had any context or what to think about it. It was just a story that sort of, you know, existed in the family. You know, remember the time she saw that that uh, hairy man or the ape in the woods and, of course, later on, as these people, you know, began to report other sightings, uh, then that kind of became rele- relevant and could very well be uh, one of the first sightings on record. And, uh, you know, I've found others in the general area in 1920 and 1930s. And then once you do get to the 40s, uh, they start, you know, proliferating because people, you know, was more on record from then on. The uh, the monster of Boggy Creek doesn't sound like a, a shy or elusive creature. That's something that we often associate with Sasquatch. This this thing has been known to get quite aggressive and taking down lo- livestock and and stealing very large uh, pigs, for example. Yeah, there were definitely cases, uh, especially some that were you know highlighted in the original movie. Uh, where the creature was blamed for carrying off, you know, 
large hogs and and killing some of the locals livestock even some of their pets um you know now whether it 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 was truly responsible you know we can't be sure but certainly this creature has exhibited much more aggressive behavior than we think of in terms of of bigfoot uh sort of you know walking by and disappearing into the woods there's been times where uh this thing has tried to get into houses has sort of uh, displayed aggressive uh, bluff charges and things that, you know, a couple of hunters that told me a story about how this thing was howling and sort of, you know, came at them. Of course, they turned and ran. And uh, another another family had a really interesting story in which uh, the guy said he could remember when they were kids, uh, they lived right along Boggy Creek and way out in the woods. And his dad had constructed this sort of uh, I guess a wooden, uh, piece that went across the door that he called the monster blocker because on a, several occasions he believed the creature had tried to get in the house. So I'm sure, I'm sure those kids were scared to death. And especially if you had to have this monster blocker up to keep the door uh, secure. So, you know, those were, those kind of proliferated to give this the Boggy Creek Monster, as well as the Southern Sasquatch, sort of an aggressive uh, reputation. How do the uh, the local law enforcement officials uh, treat reports? Do they take it seriously? Have any police uh, seen the Boggy Creek Monster? They they take it fairly seriously, and and they especially did back in the seventies when this was making a lot of news and a lot of people were coming to town. Um, you know, they were kind of forced to you know, monitor the situation so people didn't shoot themselves as they tried to hunt the creature. And, you know, I've, I've talked to the retired sheriff, H.L. Uh, Phillips, who was the sheriff of Miller County for many, many years. And he said there were just so many credible citizens that had reported sightings and people that he knew personally that he really did believe there was something to it. You know, he, he wasn't sure exactly what nature uh, the nature of the creature was but he knew these people weren't just making things up and there was one occasion where a deputy did see the thing run across uh, one of the old county roads right in front of his patrol car at the time and that certainly lends credibility to any case when you have a law officer uh, reporting that and uh, since then, you know, if you if you go talk to the game wardens or the Miller County deputies or the local uh, police, they, you know, they don't just laugh you off. They'll they'll discuss the topic and, you know, they may or may not believe it or what have you. But there's certainly a, a sense down there that um, something's going on and they're not going to uh, completely dismiss it. And uh, have you seen any credible physical evidence, plaster casts of footprints or photographic uh, evidence or video evidence. Uh, what, have, what have you seen? Uh, I've seen a, some uh, casts of footprints um, that people have taken over the years. Um, some of those being the, you know, reputed three-toed tracks, uh, but also some of those have been more of a standard five-toed Bigfoot configuration. And those tracks do look pretty good. And I've, in some cases, talked at length with the person who found them and feel like that it was a credible, uh, you know, discovery. Um, I myself have, uh, I found what almost 
to me looked like a three-toed track. It was definitely a track of something, and it was kind of submerged in a bit of a puddle in a in a trail that went in the woods. I'm just kind of lucky to have even seen it, and it was just the one track because on either side it was very grassy with leaves, so it only there was really only one clear track, and it appeared to be uh, kind of the classic three-toed track, um, you know, and that that kind of keeps me on the trail, and you know, I've seen other uh, varied tracks that, that have been found by others. And, uh, there's, there's really been no credible photos. I've seen a couple, but I didn't really think that they were, um, you know, photos of the creature. There was something there. Um, and there's been no video of the Falk monster that I've ever seen. So, you know, we, we've, we've basically got a few footprints and a lot of anecdotal accounts at this point what about scat or hair samples yeah there's been a few times that people have you know said they found something or showed me pictures um and hair samples but i've never been able to get a hold of a of anything that was you know worthy to be sent off for analysis and you know because Sometimes people tell you about this in retrospect. Oh, we found this big clump of hair where we heard these howls or we found footprints. And I'm like, well, where is the hair? You know, well, you know, like, oh, it just sort of um, slips through the fingers. But, you know, I've kind of got my feelers out now. And people, I think that if they did find anything at this point that looked promising, at least I would uh, be able to get on it quicker and have a chance of, you know, uh, finding something that could be analyzed. And have the people of Falk, Arkansas, embraced the Boggy Creek Monster the way, let's say, the people of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, have embraced the Mothman? Yeah, they definitely have. Uh, I think, you know, over the years, they've kind of had a love-hate thing with the with the creature. And part of that was just because, especially with that movie, uh, it just brought lots of yahoos down there or poking around and you know, with a 12 pack and a shotgun roaming and getting on private property and, uh, you know, the, the kind of snide news reports and things so that they really didn't want to, uh, have much to do with it. But, uh, when I, when I went down there and, uh, was researching and wrote my first book, the beast of Boggy Creek, you know, as I went forth, you know, I, I was able to write a book that was just looking at the case in a serious manner, and it brought some new attention to it. And then shows like Finding Bigfoot that started coming on about a decade ago did pieces where uh, they gave a lot of respect to it and said, hey, this is, you know, this is a, an Americana story. This is a, one of the most famous Bigfoot cases. It's something that inspired so many of us. And then I think a lot of the townsfolk saw, well, you know, we do have a really cool thing going on here. And, uh, since then there's a place called the monster Mart that has transformed from just a mere convenience store into this sort of, uh, it's basically a museum and there's souvenirs there now, kind of like what you'd find in point pleasant. And there's even, a been, uh, quite a few Falk monster festivals, Broggy Creek festivals that sort of, you know, uh, bring in, uh, Bigfoot speakers and, play up on the the history of it and so by that i think it's really developed a lot further as far as it's something like the mothman festival where people 
uh, you know, are proud of, of their local lo legends. More of my conversation with Lyle Blackburn when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. I use Life Change Tea from Get The Tea every morning and it's made such a huge difference in my life. Buy a one-year supply of Super Strength Life Change Tea and start feeling rejuvenated right now. Life Change Tea is not the same tea you buy in a store off the shelf. Life Change Tea from Get The Tea has eight powerful herbs blended together to maximize your health. This tea is specially formulated to help cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood all at once. The colon is one of the most ignored organs in the human body. The faster that waste is eliminated from the body, the less time that waste sits in our intestines, spreading toxins to our bloodstream. The benefits of this product go way beyond what I've listed here. Do your research and start your day with a cool, refreshing 16-ounce glass of Super Strength Life Change Tea. It's non-GMO, organic, caffeine-free, and again, not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. So go on, get your tea from getthetea.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to treat, cure, or diagnose any disease. If you have a medical concern, please contact your healthcare provider. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Lyle Blackburn, the author of Boggy Creek Casebook, is here. So the, the Boggy Creek monster, especially the three toes and the, and the red hair in some uh, accounts, sounds an awful light like Momo, the, another uh, creature that you've studied. The uh, the the uh, Missouri monster. Uh, do you do you think they may be in fact this from the same family or the same I don't know genus or whatever it is? Right. Yeah. I mean that's certainly one of the questions. You know, you have these these cases that are so similar in in, uh, in different parts of the country, but I, I see so many similarities between the two. Not just from description of the creature, but just the way it developed and the time periods and uh, Momo is just one of those that it had a lot of newspaper coverage and media coverage. It just didn't have a movie like Legend of Boggy Creek, but it certainly has, you know, a number of credible encounters and the, the creature is described very similar fashion, you know, covered in hair, kind of, uh, you know, aggressive and things like that, that I think, uh, you know, they could definitely be related. And I think, you know, just just if there's one genus of one species of Bigfoot is quite extraordinary enough. And I don't think that necessarily we have too many variations. It's just that depending on where these creatures live and what the environment is, you know, whether they're skunk apes from Florida or living in the Pacific Northwest, you know, like any animals, you know, there's variation due to the environment and adaptations for, for the particular terrain. So I think while uh, you know, there, there are different descriptions and configurations. I think they're probably very similar, at least cousins of the same family tree. 
So let's talk about your affiliation with Small Town Monsters. Uh, you've you've done a lot of narration for their films. I think uh, uh, an upcoming one will be your seventh. This is the, uh, it's called The Howl of the Rougarou. We can talk about that uh, creature that sounds like a, a dog man, but tell me about Small Town Monsters. Well, yeah, it's been a, it's been great to be associated with Small Town Monsters. It was a film company uh, started back in, uh, let's see, two, it was 2014 by Seth Breedlove, and they're out of Ohio. And Seth, I originally met him at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, and we talked about our love for these small town monster cases. And he, he was originally going to write a book, but ended up uh, doing a film featuring a creature case from uh, Ohio called the Minerva Monster, similar to these, you know, other ones. Um, and he his approach was was great. He just sort of let the witnesses tell the story um, and and told the history and you know beautiful cinematographer cinematography. Uh, when they did their first third film, Boggy Creek Monster, naturally he reached out to me to be involved in that. And by way of my own research, and, and I got on board with that, and I, I narrated it, and I'm in the movie. And that turned out to be kind of a good um, collaboration. People love the narration and, and sort of my input on it. So we continued that in our next film, which was The Mothman of Point Pleasant, and have continued that in most of their films since. Um, and each one has, you know, uh, gotten better and better. And, and those, uh, have been quite well received over the years. And, uh, so the newest one will be the howl of the Rougarou in which we're going to, uh, look into cases of these, of this sort of werewolves, if you will, this sort of Cajun folklore and sightings of a creature that in cryptozoology, we would call a dog man. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an exciting one and part of this, um, Southern monsters, um, theme that, that we've done with several of the movies, uh, going to these really kind of either famous or well-known, um, in local areas, interview the witnesses, talk to historians and, you know, present that as, you know, these are, these are our modern day monsters. These are the cases that, um, people are still fascinated with and, you know, let's look at what could be behind these stories and these legends. So let's talk about the Rougarou because there are some who believe it is just some uh, previously unknown animal, uh, an actual biological uh, creature. And then there are others who, who believe that the Rougarou may have some supernatural uh, aspect to it, uh, almost like the, you know, the, the traditional story of, of the werewolf. So tell me a little bit about the Rougarou and, and what you think it might be. Yeah, certainly. I mean, any, any time these cases where you're dealing with something that's described as, you know, uh, upright, you know, bipedal wolf or dog-like creature, you know, you're entering in the realms of what we think of as werewolves. And that, uh, obviously plays into whether, you know, is this a creature that is just some biological anomaly, you know, something that is yet to be discovered or something that has developed over the years, or is it something that, you know, uh, delves more into things we don't understand, supernatural or paranormal type, uh, 
things. And, you know, there's there's so many stories in Cajun culture about the Rougarou that it's it's often hard to separate what is sort of what we consider a real sighting of a cryptid and what would be considered just stories, you know, your grandmother would tell you. Because certainly there, you know, if you talk to somebody who lives in, in some of these regions, they, everybody heard stories, you know, from their grandparents and on that would say, you know, the root, watch out for the Rougarou, you know, don't go in the woods. It was almost like their own Bigfoot. Um, but when you start sort of separating that with some people who say, look, I saw, I literally saw what I think is one of these things, you know, it was a hairy dog-like looking thing that, you know, was walking in the woods. Then you start to say, well, maybe that is why these stories developed. People saw something down there in those bayous. And, you know, certainly when you talk about Louisiana and the terrain, it's very rugged and hard to, get into some of those places and they're very primordial. They, they still are like they were, you know, when people first moved to this country. So who knows what could be living down there. And certainly the Rougarou is, is, is a fascinating topic and, um, and our sort of fascination with werewolf lore and in the, you know, the, the, what is the possibility that there could be anything that's a true lycanthrope um, plays into this story of the Rougarou. Does it sound familiar to the uh, the Beast of Bray Road in, is that Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and some of the other dog men sightings in places like Michigan? Absolutely, yeah. The, these are, the descriptions of the creature are very similar. Um, you know, the, uh, the reactions people have when they see it are very similar. And the cool thing about the Rougarou is that, you know, these stories you know, at least to the not to most knowledge predate, uh, you know, the, the sort of the emergence of the beast of Bray Road and sort of the modern day dogman sightings, because, you know, this, this, the Rougarou is ingrained so far back in the Cajun culture that this could very well be, you know, the first and the foremost, uh, you know, case where we have a, a dogman and, you know, they're all, kind of fall into that kind of really frightening and spooky category because, you know, a lot of people tell me, oh man, I'd rather see a Bigfoot than a dog man. And certainly so it's just something even more sinister about, uh, this sort of werewolf creature than, than just your average Bigfoot. Uh, there are dogmen sightings in England that I've heard about, and they're often associated with the stone circles or some ancient sacred site. Uh, is there any, any of that tied in with the Rougarou or the dogman sightings in, in the U S I think there, there is. And, and I know what you mean that a lot of the, you know, the Europe sightings of this do play into, um, being seen at what we would consider a paranormal locations. Uh, in, in the U.S., I, I've noticed a lot of sightings of dogmen have occurred near cemeteries. And I don't know that that, you know, it's just coincidence because obviously some of these old cemeteries are located in the woods. But, uh, you know, cemeteries is something we traditionally considered as a possible paranormal, you know, site of hauntings and other strange occurrences. And, uh, you know, is there a connection between these dogmen type things and cemeteries? 
Um, and, and those are, you know, kind of the most paranormal places, a, a few cases, you know, military bases and other things have reported dogmen. But I remember back when I was a senior in high school, I was kind of into early on into ghost research and stuff. And I would go to these cemeteries out in the woods and, um, my girlfriend lived at a, her parents had a house out at this lake and you had to go through, you know, a lot of back roads to get to it. We stopped at this one old cemetery, you know, and I was all brave and everything got out. And back then I was kind of clueless. I didn't have any high powered flashlights or thermal imaging or anything, you know, and I was at the back of this, uh, cemetery up against the back gate. It was like a chain link fence, I think. And I heard this, something was over there in the woods and it, it made this sound that was kind of a cross between, uh, a wolf growl and a, a, a pig noise of, of some sort. And whatever it was, was huge, but I couldn't actually see it. And I, that was the one and only time I just turned and grabbed her and we, I said, get in the car, we're, we're going, there's something over there in the woods. And, you know, it, it, in retrospect, I think back and I think, wow, you know, I've, I've heard about all these sightings of dogmen near cemeteries. Could that have been what was in the woods, uh, you know, that night? Who knows? But spooky. Right, right. To say the least. How do people um, describe th- these creatures, the Rougarou or dogmen, when they are in their proximity? Because I've heard people talk about dogmen and and uh, they've described almost as if they are being communicated uh, with almost telepathically by these creatures uh, in, a, in a kind of a menacing way, telling them, you know, you don't belong here, go away, these sorts of things. How do, how do these eyewitnesses describe the Rougarou in their presence? Yeah, there there are occasions where people have a sense of fear or a sense that these things are communicating with them. You know, uh, you, you know, many of them are just simply that, uh, you know, a hunter or somebody um, along a creek or something sees one of these and it's just, you know, it's either on all fours and it stands up and it, it walks into the woods um, that, that it never really makes eye contact or sees them. In a few cases, there are some that uh, people say they were trying to get in their car or uh, say they had killed a deer and it was in the back of their truck that one of these things jumped up there and tried to pull out the carcass. Um, and then there's the more frightening ones where uh, it seems to have a, it knows you're there, it knows you see them and it perhaps communicates in some way which obviously throws it well into the paranormal category because you think, well, how could it communicate in any terms that we could understand, a lang- you know, English or any language format um, just goes into that realm of, you know, what the heck could this even be? If it is communicating, it's certainly frightening and it's certainly something that is kind of goes back to the um, if you look at old drawings and things from, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, they're always depict these kind of werewolf creatures in the woods. So I think we've always had a fear of those and that could have come from encounters with these things over the years. Would you be comfortable actually trying to, when I say hunt, uh, what I mean, you know, to 
to, to get a sighting, to get up close, to get a, uh, to get evidence, or are you more comfortable just writing about them? <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess in in a way, I I think that if I could see one, it would just I could write, you know, something even more from a first person account of seeing it. So I think I would have to take the risk and I don't, you know, in some ways I, I don't fear it too much other than there's been those few times when you're out in the woods and you think, then you think, wait a minute, what the hell am I doing? You know, it's, this is like, you're compelled to be like this Indiana Jones of uh, monster research, but at, at the same time, occasionally you kind of think, wow, if, if one of those things, a Bigfoot or a Falk monster or a, a dogman Rougarou uh, were to walk out in front of me here, you know, I could disappear and nobody would know what happened. So, but I think I'll have to take the risk and I'm not, not too afraid to, to go into the places where people say they've seen them just not only to evaluate the possibility, but there is the possibility I could see it myself. Any updates on the uh, the lizard man? This you know harkens back to one I think your first book, or certainly one of your first books, the uh, the true story of the Bishopville monster. Any any updates? Well, it, I haven't heard anything come out of Bishopville or itself. Um, but you know the good thing about writing these kind of books is people will continue to contact me if they've seen anything similar. And I've gotten a few accounts lately of people saying, Hey, you know, I read your lizard man book and you know, I saw something like this. I got one from Oklahoma, which is not one that, um, you know, would, I would associate too much with reptilian humanoid sightings. But, uh, this guy was pretty confident that he had seen something that fit the description. And he felt that I would be the one that would at least give him a listen um, so, you know, uh, those kind of accounts kind of keep adding to, um, the subject matter, um, while Bishopville itself sort of is, is just sort of still in just in, in that, that case was sort of a capsule in time and occurred. And since then, um, you know, the creature presumably had moved on, but that, that doesn't mean that, uh. You know, there aren't others out there in other places that are similar to that. So how do people screen the uh, the films from Small Town Monsters, seven of which you've narrated, including the latest, The Howl of the Rougarou? How do we see them? Uh, the best venue is probably Amazon Prime Video. And, and, you know, all the films are on there and they're distributed in other various platforms. So you could look at those uh, iTunes movies, has them, Vimeo, um, but you can hit smalltownmonsters.com and it'll kind of give you the rundown of what there is. Um, or you could search Lyle Blackburn on Amazon and those will also come up. And many of those are just streaming free at this point on Amazon Prime. And of course, How the Rougarou will debut later this year and uh, be in similar uh, streaming platforms. And uh, Small Town Monsters, uh, didn't they launch a, a crowdfunding campaign recently? Yes. Uh, one of the cool things about Small Town Monsters and something that uh, Seth established early on was that in order to have the freedom to create the movies the way he and the rest of us 
you know, enjoy doing without interference from TV networks or uh, film executives, no one else, is to actually get, uh, you know, the fans to crowdfund, whether that's just pre-ordering a DVD or actually becoming an executive producer or something uh, higher level. And it's it's been amazing, the response over the years of, of people wanting to be involved in the making of these films, which attests to, you know, the you know, the popularity of them. Uh, so each year, Small Town Monsters launches these uh, Kickstarter crowdfunding and, you know, everybody pitches in. So we recently launched the one which is going to fund Howl of the Rougarou as well as some other series ones that he does on the trail of UFOs, on the trail of Bigfoot, um, which are all just self-funded. I mean, the, the Small Town Monsters crew is about 10 people and it's it's great because we can make the type of films that we would want to see without interference. So uh, if you want to, uh, you can search on Kickstarter for Small Town Monsters and see the latest Kickstarter if you want to be involved and check out what we got going. And uh, in addition, of course, we have uh, your many books, The Lizard Man, The Beast of Boggy Creek, Beyond Boggy Creek, uh, Momo, uh, Sinister Swamps, and the latest uh, Boggy Creek Casebook. How do we get a copy? Uh, the best place there would be to head to Amazon, and they exist in all the formats, paperback, uh, most of them in hardback, and on Kindle. So check those out on Amazon. And uh, the website, of course, lyleblackburn.com. lyleblackburn.com. I've linked up to that in the episode notes for this podcast. Lyle, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Always enjoy it. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a moment to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the Whistleblower Tier. And a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up next time, a former high-powered executive leaves that world behind to research Tesla mathematics and sacred geometry and ends up unlocking the ancient secrets to healing using light, color, and sound. What if we had an egg shape? And what if we use sacred geometry? And what if we use the golden mean ratio? What if we deliver the music with the phi ratio relationship and and the lights would be specific colors so that, you know, some people don't just need the whole rainbow color spectrum. They just need these different colors. And, and what if we could just tune the music so that they just needed drumming or they just needed piano and those wave bubbles, those sound bubbles would in, just be immersed in this experience. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. 
A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 